Hello and hello and welcome to A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an hour-long live broadcast dedicated to and guided by your questions on the Bible. That's right, it's your questions that guide our time along for the most part. Sometimes these guys chat about other things, but for the most part, we take your Bible questions. So if you have a question on the Bible, maybe a verse or passage of Scripture, uh, perhaps um, worlds going on, world views, things in your world even that you're going through and you'd like a biblical scriptural perspective, that's what we're here to do. We have some just wonderful guys and brothers here who love the Word and just have done some wonderful study, and we get to pick their brains and we get to pick the Word and uh, go through those questions. So we're very glad that you're part of our broadcast today. My name is Dave Robson. I'll be your host and, like I say, literally following along on all our platforms as your questions come in, and we will try our best to get to all those questions. Also with us today on this uh, Tuesday evening here in uh, Tucson, Arizona, where it is freezing cold. It is so cold today. <laughs> is it really? I, can't, I think it is. If it's cold to me, then it's cold because I, I like the cold, but man. Some hardcore cold. narcissism there, dude. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm British. I mean, I'm used to some cold weather, and, but man, it is, it is chilly. Anyway, Pastor Sean Richards, how are you doing today? It's good to see you. Yeah, traumatized by the research I had to do leading up to the broadcast, but apart from that. Oh, really? Yeah, we have a, a question hard to get to that is that what you're referring to? That's very interesting. Cool. Well, we look forward to hearing that. All the questions are interesting. They, are you, no. <laughs> some, of them are, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> some are boilerplate. This is extra. This is a 9 out of 10. But. They're drab. <laughs> also, uh, Peter Martin, how are you today? Doing good. Are you doing good? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you go for a bike ride today in the I cold? Did. He's, my goodness. Did. Right in the beautiful, beautiful weather. Outside. It is cold. I hate to go on about it, but it is cold. It is cold today. There's probably people living in, you know, north of the country. That know, this is like a balmy summer day. In it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> people are sunbathing in, in yeah. England, at least. I know that. But, <laughs> but so, well, there are several ways you can be part of our broadcast. It's good to to know the options in case something goes wrong technically on, on uh, one of the platforms. Some of them, like Facebook and YouTube, are out of our control sometimes. But we have a, a website you can fall back on as well. And we always recommend that you do that. Um, as I mentioned, A Reason for Hope is a live broadcast, an hour long, Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. That's right, right, boys? Mountain Standard? Is that where we're at? Yeah. I think so. I think it, so. It shifts depending on the, <laughs> it's so, yeah. the time of year. Yeah. It's so cold, I can't tell. <laughs> we're in Alaska. No. Um, so you can join us, yeah, week long. Um, if you're listening to us on Reach Radio or Radio Affiliate, you are listening to our last show pre-recorded, um, so you're kind of like a day behind there, so to speak. But all our other platforms that I'm going to tell you about our live, uh, live as can be. Uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship is our website. A Reason for Hope is a ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship, so keep that in mind when you're trying to find us. And also I mentioned if you're looking for somewhere to fellowship and you're in the Tucson, Arizona area, we'd love to have you come visit, check us out. But uh, we have no interest in poaching you from another <laughs> church. Stay put and do your thing. Um, <laughs> but anyway, calvarychristianfellowship.com is the website there. If you follow that watch live tab, it will take you to our live page. When we're offline, you'll see a countdown to our next show, and you'll see a schedule of all the events, not only Reason for Hope, but our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. But as we're live, you will see a live video. You'll see a, like a chat function where you can uh, put a, like a username in and then join the chat right there. It's pretty cool. Uh, the direct link is ccftucson.online.church, or again, just follow that link from our website. On Facebook, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, search for that. You'll see the picture there of a handsome uh, senior pastor, Scott Richards, and that's where we're at um, live, uh, or facebook.com slash ccftucson. We have a app for your mobile device, whether it's iPhone or, or um, oh my gosh, Android. <laughs> I always forget that word. 
Because I'm such an iPhone. Because you're so addicted to Apple. I am such an Apple person. <laughs> I need to write it down somewhere because I often forget. <laughs> but if you go to your, your app store and look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, you'll see that logo there. It's the Calvary Chapel dove on the red background. And you can download that on your iPad or your mobile phone. But also on Roku and Apple TV, if you have those TV devices, you can watch us on your big screen as well. And who wouldn't want to blow us up in high def? That's scary. That's a scary thought. Um, on YouTube, we're at A Reason for Hope. That is the name of the channel there, A Reason for Hope. Uh, technically, it's at A Reason for Hope 546. But once again, just search in the search bar and you will find us. You'll see that picture of uh, Scott and Sean there in Israel. That's how you know you're in the right place. Because I think there's a couple of channels called A Reason for Hope. So, but that's how you can differentiate. That's, that's how you can tell that's us apart. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can follow our senior pastor, Scott Richards, on uh, Twitter. His handle is at ScottR4H. He posts highlights from the show and like commentary on like world events, like news events and prophetic things and things like that. So it's very interesting if you want to follow along. It's a good way of kind of uh, being up to date on what's going on in the world, especially Israel and those kind of things. And last but not least, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questionsforhope spelled out at gmail.com. Again, if you're listening on the radio, you can send your questions there. We do get to those on the show as well. And we'll even try and give priority to those if you send those in. And consider joining us on one of our live platforms if you are a radio uh, listener when you can do so safely. Whew. So with all that being said, Peter, would you like to pray before we go any further? <laughs> into yes. the show. Yes, I would, Dave. Let's do it. <laughs> uh, dear God, thank you so much that we have the opportunity to be here, that we have the opportunity to get into your word and to feel these questions. And we pray that both myself, Sean, and Dave, we would be able to answer these questions in a way that honors your word and truth, that all those listening and participating in the show uh, would be blessed, uh, not by our insight or wisdom, but by yours, Lord. So uh, we're thankful for you. We trust you and in your name. Amen. Mm. Amen. Thank you. Well, Tuesday, you guys usually do a bit of a, an apologetic spot. Is there something on your hearts and minds to share today? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Always. Oh, yes. Um, Glad you asked. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that layup there, Dave. <laughs> but uh, uh, Yeah, so during our segment on Thursdays, we've been going through books that me and Sean think would be edifying and good for you guys to check out and read on your own time. And we've talked about C.S. Lewis and his book, Mere Christianity, and we are now talking about J.R.R. Tolkien. So if you guys aren't tuning in for that, you could always find those segments on YouTube, or you could also listen to those live when we tackle them. But uh, there is an interesting factor about Tolkien and Lewis that some people don't know. They were actually really good friends, and Tolkien was instrumental mm. in bringing C.S. Lewis to faith in Christ. I didn't know that. That's yeah, awesome. See? Not yeah. a lot of people know. There That's you go. Great. Uh, at any rate, so they would send each other their works and allow them to edit each other's uh, whatever books they happened to be writing at the time and give them positive feedback. So apparently, there is a segment within Mere Christianity that talks about Christ the Christian ideal of marriage and specifically how society should implement those ideals in a positive manner that Tolkien wrote a rebuttal to. So he actually disagreed with what C.S. Lewis said he wrote a rebuttal to what Lewis said, but he never sent it. So uh, we're not really sure if maybe he didn't like his argumentation or maybe he didn't want to cause waves in his relationship with C.S. Lewis, or maybe he just personally talked to him about it. We're not actually positive about what happened, but someone found this paper in one of J.R. Tolkien's libraries after they were kind of cleaning out his stuff after he passed. 
And so I thought it would be really interesting to bring up because as the so-called Respect for Marriage Act just passed, I think, a month ago, uh, and Congress has brought up this same debate of what should marriage look like when it is implemented by the state. And since Tolkien and Lewis are such behemoth intellects, I think that these are the best articulated versions of either side of the debate. So we're gonna, I'm going to give you what their uh, arguments are, uh, define them, and explain kind of where I stand, and Sean can give kind of where he stands on the issue, uh, and, and why we believe the way that we do. So the first thing I want to point out is what these guys did not debate about and what they didn't disagree about, similarly to what's going on in Christianity today, or as Dave likes to call it, Christendom, uh, yeah, <laughs> as uh, what, what the debate was about was not what is the biblical ethic of Christian marriage. That wasn't the debate. And there are many very solid and sound believers on both sides of this debate today. The debate is, given the fact that we don't live in a theocracy, and we don't believe that Jesus intended for the church to set up a theocracy, how are Christians supposed to fight for legislation in their communities that uphold the ideal of marriage without creating a theocratic type of system in which people are excluded from society unless they agree with Christian fundamentals? So that's kind of the simplest way I could put it. So this is the argument of what you would call a more libertarian argument that C.S. Lewis gives us. So again, this is from Mere Christianity. This is from his chapter called uh, Christian Marriage. And this is what he writes. He says, uh, the Christian conception of marriage is one, uh, is one, the other is the quite different question. How far Christians, if they are voters or members of parliament, ought to try to force their views of marriage on the rest of the community by embodying them in divorce laws. A great many people seem to think that if you are a Christian yourself, you should try to make divorce difficult for everyone. I do not think that. At least I know I should be very angry if the Mohammedans tried to prevent the rest of us from drinking wine. My own view is that the churches should frankly recognize that the majority of British people are not Christians and therefore cannot be expected to live Christian lives. There ought to be two distinct kinds of marriage, one governed by the state with rules enforced on all citizens, the other governed by the church, with rules enforced by her on her own members. The distinction ought to be quite sharp, so that a man knows which couples are married in a Christian sense and which are not. So the way that's articulated in the modern conversation, the Respect for Marriage Act, is some Christians, some Bible-believing, solid Christians are saying, yes, I don't believe that the church should affirm a homosexual marriage. However, it's okay for the state to have a separate definition of marriage that doesn't line up with the churches. So if the state wants to create a system in which two men can be married uh, or that someone can have a no-fault divorce, that's okay. The church shouldn't affirm that, but if the state wants to do that, that will help regulate all of the citizens as opposed to simply the Christian ones. Mm. So that's C.S. Lewis's argument, and there are many Bible-believing Christians who agree with him to this day. Now, this is Tolkien's response. The foundation, so this is Tolkien speaking, the foundation is that Christian morality is the correct way of running the human machine. Your argument, speaking about Lewis, reduces it merely to a way of perhaps getting extra mileage out of a few selected machines. 
the horror of the Christians with whom you disagree, the great majority of all practicing Christians at Tolkien's time, I don't think that's true anymore, mm. uh, at legal divorce is in the ultimate analysis precisely that. Horror at seeing good machines ruined by misuse. Tolerations of divorce, if a Christian does tolerate it, is toleration of a human abuse, which requires special local and temporary circumstances to justify, as does the toleration of usury. If indeed, either divorce or genuine usury should be tolerated at all as a matter of expedient policy. So uh, Tolkien is again writing to his friend who's an intellectual, so he didn't feel the need to kind of dumb it down the way that Lewis did. Right. So that one's a little <laughs> more difficult to understand what he's saying. The argument goes like this. We believe that God is good. He is the representation and the totality of all that it means to be good and moral in this world. What that means is that collated in the Christian law and the Christian morals are not just suggestions of what might be okay for a particular individual. They are universal truths that promote happiness and prosperity for all. So what he's saying is, if the Bible prescribes a particular view of marriage, it's not just something you have to be Christian in order to enjoy. Mm. And it's not something that you have to be, that if you're a non-Christian, won't be detrimental to you, mm. right? So when the Bible says, thou shalt not murder, if we say, well, you know, I don't really want to enforce that on everybody. I'm using an extreme example here, by the way. I'm, just, yeah. I'm not trying to straw man Lewis. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, the Bible says, thou shalt not murder. If I'm going to say, well, I don't want to put my biblical ethics on someone who's not a believer, so I'm going to allow that for the majority of society, but the church shouldn't allow it within its own institution. Mm. The, the problem with that is that if I allow murder within my society to be legalized, then what I've done is I've allowed for something that will promote societal decay, right? This is something that God has prescribed, not just for Christians, but for human flourishing. Mm. And to deny it would actually to deny, be to deny society from flourishing in the way that God intended. So it's right and good for Christians to promote Christian morality within a society, whether or not their society agrees with the premise of Christian morality, being that God is underneath it. Uh, and that's Tolkien's argument. I don't really mm. care if people agree with the premises of Christian, uh, Christian theology. Christian morality will benefit them. Mm. And if we deny them this, if we're like, hey, just figure it out on your own, we have this divine revelation of what's gonna make you happy in marriage, but we're not going to tell you because you should just figure it out on your own, right? That kind of natural theology, he said, is detrimental. And he argues, essentially, because Lewis mentions this in Mere Christianity, he likens divorce to amputating a limb. He's like, this is a traumatic event. It's not something that is to be taken lightly, right? If you think it's that traumatic, that's not a very moral thing to allow people to stumble in the dark who don't know better mm. and to basically contribute to that kind of corruption within their societies. So on one token, just to sum up these points and I'll pass it over to Sean, on one token you have, again, Lewis saying, yes, Christian morality is good. Yes, it's universal. However, there are limitations to which Christian morals and ethics are reasonable to put on people. Mm. And he argued that Christian sexual ethics is not reasonable to impose upon society writ large. Mm. It's just not. Uh, people who don't have knowledge of the true and living God, who are not transformed by the indwelling of the Spirit, don't have the capacity to follow Christian morality when it pertains to marriage, so we shouldn't enforce it. So it'd be kind of like, should we enforce people to go to church? Should we enforce people to tithe? Should we enforce people right uh, to pray? Even though we believe these are really beneficial things, we wouldn't enforce it. Tolkien is looking at it and saying, no, 
Christian marriage is not in the same category of, say, enforcement of prayer or tithing or something like that. It's in the same category of, like, thou shalt not murder. It's something that's just good for all peoples in all time. Mm. And people can, through societal strictures, be elevated to this way of living, and it would benefit them. So we should fight for it in a political fashion. Mm. Doesn't mean we'll always win, and doesn't mean it's the end of the world if we lose. It just means that we ought to fight for it because it would benefit society as a whole. Mm. All right, so I hope that makes sense. Now let me pass it over to Sean and just say, like, what's, what's kind of the biblical underpinning for what they're talking about? And how are, do we understand in our day? Yeah, when it comes to us understanding where both of these great thinkers are coming from, the hardest part of the conversation is that neither of them are wrong. Right. And so if mm. we're going to say which side we stand on, we should at least know what did they get right and what's being left out of the equation, because obviously these are two different people and both using more than one brain cell. Obviously, on the C.S. Lewis end of things, he would have most prominently, although not exclusively, 1 Corinthians 5 in mind when he's talking about there being an expectation of ethics for the church and an expectation of behavior for those who don't yet know Jesus. We oftentimes summarize it on the broadcast in saying, I shouldn't expect somebody who doesn't know Jesus to act like it. This is the passage. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Then goes on to say, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. So not just referring to a like community, not just even referring to a family, these are those who share the same fatherhood of Christ through the Son, yeah. a fellow Christian. Who, a brother who, is sexually immoral, or covetous, or idolater, or reviler, or drunkard, or extortioner, not even to eat with such a person? And oddly enough, to establish this ethic, he quotes the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 13, and stating that you are to put away from yourselves the evil person. For those of you who are familiar, the book of Deuteronomy, literally second law, was addressed to Israel, and they were to put away not from the nation, but within the nation, from yourselves, the evil person. They applied the laws to the citizens. If you were a foreigner, you could enter into Israel, and they weren't to oppress you because they were foreigners in Egypt. That's also in the same book, by the way. But the point of emphasis continues on that foundation. Is this, in fact, what we're talking about? C.S. Lewis, in applying marriage, isn't necessarily arguing like Tolkien for the ideal, He's falling back on, let's make sure we define our terms, not just between marriage and whatever <clears throat> the world is calling it today, yeah. whatever our country is calling it today, but also the difference between us and the non-believer. People who need the gospel in a proper marriage are still going to hell. Yeah. And he wants to make that distinct. The same thing should be taken to mind when we do this as well. So when it comes to C.S. Lewis's point's greatest strength, and this is, again, to be brief so we can get to your questions. He's mitigating damage and preventing the possibility of the consequences we're seeing in the United States today. Right. Because when we ask the question, and he gave the example of what happens if the shoe is on the other foot? Right. What if another religious institution with other than ideal values takes the same power but applies the same laws? Suddenly, prayer is enforced under Sharia five times a day. Right. Suddenly, diets are enforced. Or even under prayer rejected, yeah. restricted yeah. in public you, places. Yeah, yeah, go to the uh, Dome of the Rock and uh, let me know how inclusive they are. Mm -hmm. But the point being made is just that. When we're talking about the 
horrors of the handmaid's tale as the uh, United States and uh, I guess Western media try to caricature Christianity as trying to do any goal that we should have in ultimately setting an example this is Lewis's point should be from individual to individual not from government to citizen that's his point now Tolkien's point on the other hand and I can pass this to you because it's probably a little bit more at home for you is of course one that has strength but from a different angle yeah that's right so again the the argument is not on morality it's on practicality what's what's the most practical way to understand our morality and to influence the culture writ large so tolkien's idea is that and this is something that lewis points out as well that god's being is sometimes perceptible to people through the transcendentals so in other words when someone engages with goodness, good morality, they are engaging with an aspect or attribute of God's character. So some people are actually brought to Christ through Christian morality. And this is an argument that's existed throughout the Middle Ages. You have to remember that when Paul is writing 1 Corinthians 5, the Christians had zero institutional power. So he's arguing from a perspective of, we're a persecuted minority, guys. We don't have any way of influencing Rome at all. So we got to kind of keep our heads down, and we need to uh, have our system that exists within the church and make sure it's cohesive. But we can't go out and start judging people outside because we don't have the ability or authority to do so. Uh, beyond that, it would be wrong to, to do that on a macro level. It, this topic really doesn't come out in Christian writing until Augustine in the 400s, when Christianity becomes legal, and he starts arguing from this perspective when it comes to Christian morality. And then in the Middle Ages, they really take off. But the idea then is, is it, if the idea is like we want to convert people, does making the Christian ethics uh, accessible to the most amount of people actually make people more amenable to the gospel? And the answer for uh, a lot of the Christian writers, and uh, all, obviously Tolkien was a Catholic, and so he's very read up on these guys, is that, yes, it does, right? So the more moral a society is, it doesn't make them Christian, but it actually makes the, the gospel more accessible to them because they've tasted and seen. They've seen the goodness of the laws of God. Mm. And even though they haven't been believing in the source of it, they've been enjoying it to an extent, yeah. right? They've been enjoying the beauty of marriage. So they're seeing... The marriage, which is a acted out symbol of God's love for his people, at play within their own personal lives, and they've learned how to nail down their commitment and force themselves to stick around even when it's difficult because they're not allowed to divorce for just any reason. And also, they're understanding gender distinctions when it's restricted to male and female. So Tolkien's idea would be like the best way for people to see the gospel is if we allow for the goodness of God to be most accessible to society as a whole. Mm -hmm. So we want to fight for these things. Beyond that, if you have one side that is fighting simply not to lose, and you have another side who is fighting to win, you're always going to lose, right? So his argument to lose would be, hey, look, I understand that you want to set up a two-tiered system in which there's freedom and justice for all. But your opponents don't want that. <laughs> your opponents are not willing to give you the same courtesy. They will take your ability mm. to practice your faith. So it's not going to be any good for you to just fight for neutrality. You're going to have to fight for a, a, a healthy moral ideal. Now, in my 20s, I agreed with Lewis totally. In my 30s, I'm now 33, I now 
agree with Tolkien. <laughs> now, the main reason is not because their ideas have become more nuanced to me. It's because I've seen it play out in real time, mm. right? So I've seen Tolkien, his prediction is coming true. Once you erode Christian morality, what happens to the society as a whole? So when Obergefell passed in 2000, I believe it was 2013, uh, which is the Supreme Court decision to allow for uh, homosexual marriage to be permissible throughout all states, made it a right under the Constitution. When that happened, my initial take was like, who cares? Mm. These people don't know God anyway. Why do I care if they're marrying the person that they're with or if they're just having sex with the person that they're, that they're with without getting married? It doesn't make any difference to me. They're, they're fallen in sin and they need the gospel. That was my ideal. So I agreed very much with Lewis. However, during the last 10 years, I've seen what's happened to our society. That mm. one movement of that barrier has had really severe ramifications in how people view gender distinction mm-hmm. and how people view marriage as a whole, right? So when you see the effects of passing something like that, it makes you look at Tolkien and say, I think you were more right. That's just my right. perspective, right? Yeah. And what more I think right. is undeniable, though, is that there has been an effect. That political shift has had a societal effect that's been largely negative. Mm-hmm. That doesn't disprove Lewis. It just means that there is... Uh, an effect to politics. Those do have consequences. You can't say like, well, politics never affected morality. Actually, it does. And we've seen it happen. Uh, And that wasn't Lewis's point, by the way. Probably if Lewis was alive today, I don't know if he would reevaluate his point. I'm going to I'm going to steal man as much as I can. Mm. He would probably say, yeah, but that was baked into my calculations. I accept Mm. that it does have a societal effect. But I think the preservation of individual liberty is worth that sacrifice. Um, I would say today, I would say I, I don't agree with that anymore. I don't think the preservation of personal liberty is worth the societal decay yeah. because, again, you are not only seeing a growth in debaucherous behavior, but Christian belief is down in a huge numbers for the new generation. So it has made it more difficult for people to access the gospel. <coughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I, would, I would now agree with Tolkien a little bit more. But again, yeah. I could, fr- in a very friendly way, disagree with my fellow Christians who don't see it my way. Right, right. So, in summary, Tolkien's point is there is a place to not only encourage but enforce things that work. The gob, the gob of the government, the job of the government <laughs> is to uphold the good and restrain the evil. And that would be based not just in the United States based on our charter, but also just based on humanity because of our creator, the biblical worldview. Lewis's point is on a person by person level, you have the opportunity to show what works, but in a system of a fallen sinful world that abuses these things like it's a sport not the best idea to put in legislation that can be used the other way. So both sides are making a valid point, a biblical point, and what needs to ultimately be taken in consideration is whether you're 20 or 30, right? <laughs> and uh, once you have kids. <laughs> I think that affects your, your I, perspective on these things too. I'm in my 20s and I don't have kids, so you can tell where I stand on this. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only reason. Yeah, we're reaching a different decade, aren't we? Yeah, and you're in like your 50s. And you're, no, 40s. 60s. 40s. 70s? 40s. No, 40s. <laughs> yes, young man. <laughs> well, it's a, a very interesting uh, debate and conversation for sure. Thank you for sharing that stuff. Um, we can jump into the questions if you guys are ready. Yep. Ready for that? Yep. 
Whew. All right, deep breath. A uh, question from Althea. <clears throat> Are the concepts of is succubus and incubus biblical? And I know, Sean, you mentioned this question and did some study today. And Unfortunately. Yeah. What is, uh, can you explain what those are? I and believe the plural is succubi. Succubi, yeah. Incubi, so. Latin's weird. <laughs> now, um, S- succubus sounds like a, just a bad form of transportation to me. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, over to you, Sean. <laughs> Your culture came up with that word, by the way. Um, the idea of the succubus and the incubus, the person who gave the question used the example of spiritual spouses, that there's this spiritual entity in my life and it's causing all this misfortune and it takes place at a decidedly superstitious, and I don't mean that as an insult, this is the definition of it, uh, Christian group, and they're associating their problems with the spiritual realm, and they're using these terms that people think come from the Bible because they're associated with bible names. The succubus is a broad term referring to a, and this is in pop culture, I'll take steps back to define it briefly. Uh, The succubus in modern day culture is just referring to a female demon. That's usually how it's portrayed. Mm. An incubus, same thing, but a dude. I guess that's hate speech in most countries, but you get the point. So portraying demonic entities, spiritual entities, non-physical entities as gendered. First strike, and you'll just set that aside for a moment. We'll explain why biblically in a moment. The terms for succubi and incubi come from Latin terms, just referring to generally assumed positions in marital in activities. Uh, the incubus, one who comes over, succubus, one who comes under. The mm. idea is that these feminine and masculine activities, specifically in a sexual way, This is where we get the majority of our writings from. This is between the 1400s to the 1600s, the medieval Europe period, where a lot of the, I guess, naturally psychological and physiological phenomenons people had, not to be crass, but this is just the modern term, things like wet dreams, nocturnal emissions, take what you will. If it happened for a boy or a girl, the idea was that these thoughts were from the spiritual realm. You were visited by an incubus or a succubus. And the idea, of course, is they would come up with all these stories and resisting sexual temptation. They'd have all these rituals and prayers, how to confront these creatures. And of course, it all came from the assumption that they are actually a thing. So notice, first term, male, female, demonic entities are gendered. The stories are centered around, well, my engagement with these spiritual forces is very ritualistic and it's expressed in my physiology. Now, rather unhelpfully, secular cultures, like especially the 1800s in Germany and others after them, Sigmund Freud being the most prominent, said, no, this was just the superstitious and antiquated Christians trying to uh, give terms to repressed sexual urges, to desire and the natural ideas behind that. Close but no cigar, or in Sigmund Freud's case, no string of cocaine. Because when we're talking about this issue, That's a joke. You can laugh. (laughs) We're talking about this issue. It's ultimately not just coming from an explanation for natural phenomena, which to a point they are right, but it actually comes from something a lot more stupid. (laughs) I mean that without hesitation. The idea of the succubus and the incubus, these demonic entities, either A, having human origin or B, having human traits, what we would call an anthropomorphism giving them sexual characteristics and even activities are coming from what's called Jewish mysticism or the Kabbalah. 
Now, the Kabbalah, it's really hard to pin down when exactly it came into circulation, but the authors of this approach never claimed that it was divinely inspired. It was more of a spiritualized and allegorical look at the ways of the world in relation to the supernatural, but never the twain shall really meet. And it comes with a lot of really bizarre assumptions about God and heaven and hell and the you know sin and righteousness and you know the things that actually matter when it comes to being a Christian or a Jew for that matter. When people study Kabbalah, it's not to get knowledge, it's to get insights to people trying to parallel modern day events and to do so in a way that's very fantastical. It would be no more relevant to us today as a comic book movie would back then. Now, there are some who took it more seriously than others. I'm not going to just say, you know, carte blanche is for everybody. But you need to understand where the idea of this thing even came from. And it originates with the story of Lilith. Now, this is a hard R-rated story. I'm going to try to PG-13 it a little bit, but for those of you who maybe have kids listening, if you haven't had the talk or you don't think that they need to be exposed to this sort of stuff, just open a tab and mute for maybe the next two minutes, and then we'll welcome you back here in a moment. Ready? All right. The story of Lilith was essentially a situation where apparently God created a prototype for Eve. There was a pre-Eve before the mother of all living, Adam's actual wife. And the crux of the story is essentially that Lilith did not like the sexual positions that Adam was trying to have with her and that God commanded Adam to have with her. And she, not liking this, essentially rebelled, and how it's portrayed varies, but she ultimately became a demon and one of the consorts of the half-human, half-demon offspring of hell known as Samael, who was produced as a result of David going at a demoness, a succubus, take whatever you want, in the same way. So the idea is from a very bizarre situation that was a rabbinic point about girls willing to submit to certain traditional positions in bed. That's the origin of this whole idea of a succubus and also incubus later on to note this demonic interaction. Now, is it true biblically that there was a human being created before at or before rather Eve but after Adam and the answer is no in Genesis chapter 2 we're given a very explicit statement that man and woman ish and isha were created in the garden and God told them to be fruitful and multiply the same kind of logic we need to address and answer people with this the same kind of tactics you have to take for people who propose a gap theory well they're has to be this demonic entity, but because how else do you get female demons? Where is Where are all these entities being birthed from and so forth? It comes from an assumption of an assumption of a tradition of a fanciful story now portrayed in popular media because someone wanted to make a weird point that wasn't appropriate for kids. And the point being made is just that. When we're talking about the idea of, and this is the overlying assumption, the first strike that we mentioned, are demons, or angels for that matter, sexual creatures? And the answer is a hard no. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus was addressed about a debunking question that the Sadducees had concerning there even being an afterlife, a resurrection. And they said, okay, so you got the Leverite law, if a guy 
uh, dies and his wife doesn't bear him any <clears throat> offspring, the brother marries the girl to produce an offspring in his name because you wanted to keep the family line going. Girl has seven husbands, doesn't have one child. Resurrection happens. Whose wife is she? Because they all tried to have kids with her. And apart from the obvious question, what was she feeding them? Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures, nor the power of God, nor the resurrection. Because in the resurrection, what? They are neither marrying nor given in marriage, but are like the angels. Now, the question is, and this is where the bad teachers who try to make the inference. That says angels, not demons. Well, let's take a step back and ask, what's the structure of the point? Angels and demons, what is the sole difference between the two? Their relationship with God, not their genus. There's not a separate type of creation that's a demon, that God created evil spirits and good spirits. The spirit, the messenger, literally the angel, Diver, uh, differs between being an adversary, a demon, and a just plain old messenger, an angel, based on whether it lines up with God's word. So, if they neither marry nor are given in marriage, and we're even going to assume that angel means elect angel, righteous angel, are they going to engage in reproductive activities, first of all, without reproductive appendages, non-physical beings having physical attributes? Already a problem, already a stretch. But also note, are they going to pursue that in a way that God doesn't approve of if they're righteous? Now, people say, well, see, that's what makes it a sin. On the assumption that this is even happening, on the assumption that these spiritual entities take on physical attributes and purposes that are only prescribed to purely physical creatures in Genesis 2 through 3, or 1 through 2, rather. 3 is where things went wrong. So the point being made is just that. When we're talking about these spiritual spouses, I appreciate the fact that you want to have your eye on the sky. That's the best bridge I can put off to you. But if, on the other hand, you're going to actually look into where the assumptions of these came from, it came from a source that no way claimed to be the authority of the Bible, that didn't come from revelation from God, but the speculation, or rather the perverted machinations of a man. And when we can verify that from the source itself, not inferring it because I don't like Christianity, I then say what? That's not only absent from the Bible, thus not biblical, but in direct conflict with plain statements made in the Bible. Two strikes where only one is needed for you to be out. Mm -hmm. So when you hear about these stories of, oh, I have spiritual spouses, or what about the Nephilim and all this stuff, let's just stick with what we know. When it comes to the idea of the succubus or the incubus, that there are demonic entities exclusively looking to engage in a way that is contrary to Scripture, I not only say that's a false statement because it conflicts with what I know about the supernatural, but for goodness sake, it just sounds silly. So when it comes to the natural versus the supernatural, what's been revealed to us should be where we start, and what goes beyond that should be past where we finished if that makes sense. Let us know if that helps you out. Yeah. Thank you, Althea, for the question. So no, in short, right? No, it's not a biblical <laughs> biblical thing. Um, thank you for your question. Uh, let, me, let me add just uh, one real oh, quick Oh, yeah, thing. of course. Uh, so uh, one, one way that someone could, could argue that point, obviously you can't argue it biblically, but you could argue it experientially. So there are people who uh, claim that they've had experiences with demons that are sexual in nature. Now, 
there are a couple problems, obviously, with these experiences. The first one is that usually people who are having these experiences are really high. Uh, they're on some sort of a hallucinogenic. But there is a question of like, well, maybe once you open your mind up to that capacity to be so detached from reality mm -hmm. that you might be experiencing something that's quote unquote real in a spiritual capacity that you're in, in other words, you're inviting in demonic experiences into your life. And there are several people that I know that have had these demonic experiences and the way they describe them to me, I, I actually kind of believe that there is reality to them. Mm -hmm. Now, even if you do experience something that is sexual in nature towards a demonic entity, that doesn't necessarily mean that there is actually a sexual component to it. Because as Sean mentioned, these are purely spiritual beings that don't have the appendages necessary to have sex with you. What it, mean, what it could mean, though, is that there is a torturous aspect to the ways that the demons are afflicting you, and they're representing themselves in a sexual context. Now, when you think about demonic possession, which we do know is biblical, there is a form of sexuality to it. And this is what I mean. Indwelling of the Holy Spirit, becoming one with God, is represented in the act of sex. Demonic possession is a corrupted version of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Instead of a free will offering in which I accept God into my life, in a loving capacity, mm. and we, he joins with me, and and we participate with one another. He he helps me, but he doesn't possess me. He doesn't take over me. Then that's acted out in biblical marital sexual activity, right? Consensual sexual activity that represents that greater spiritual truth. Well, when a demon possesses somebody, they're indwelling them in a similar way to the Holy Spirit, but they're taking possession of them as if they're like a meat puppet, which would be similar to rape. That, that would be the acted out, like rape would be an acted out version of that. Mm. So it, it doesn't really surprise me that some people have demonic experiences that are represented in that way, uh, meaning that they're, they're real in the sense that they are experiencing them, mm. but they're not real in the sense that nothing has happened to your body, right? <clears throat> the, the demons haven't bodily actually had some sort of a sexual abuse towards you. Mm. So it, it does make sense that people who have had those experiences would make that leap. Um, and, and hey, I have all the sympathy in the world for you if that's happened to you. Mm. And I'm, I'm hoping that that traumatic and horrible experience led you away from whatever lifestyle uh, opened you up to it. Uh, but So I'm not trying to denigrate what you've been through, but I am saying it, it, it is important, like Sean said, to not build a theological understanding mm. based upon experience like that. Yeah. Very good. Thanks for adding that. Uh, thanks again, Althea, for being part of the, the show and for your question. Uh, question from uh, Gladys. Thank you for, I know it was a question from yesterday, and you rejoined us today and re-asked it. So thank you for hanging in there. Her question is, how do you biblically deal with anxiety? Um, thoughts she, uh, today she added to that. Um, worrying about something done in the past and likely to repeat in the future. But just generally dealing with anxiety biblically and Peter Martin does a lot of the counseling here at the church and obviously deals with a lot and have had your own, you know, walk with anxiety and, you know, mental health things. So, yeah. 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 So just stop being anxious and uh, trust God. Not okay. <laughs> yeah. Where's your faith? Where's your faith at, bro? You got to, yeah, you got to have a little more faith if, yeah. if you want to be serious about the Lord. Uh, no, in, in all seriousness. So uh, in the Bible, the term anxiety actually is, is a word that means to come apart. Uh, to be detached, oh, wow. right? And 
definition that I've been given in modern days is anxiety is an inability to attach your mentality to physical reality that's around you. In other words, it's an inability to be mentally present. So mm. your, your mind is detached from your present status and it's attached to varying degrees of separation where you're worried about the future, you're worried about the past, or you're worried about potentialities that are coming around the bend, things like that. But it's an inability to be present with your current circumstances. Your mind is pulled apart, mm. separated from your body in a radical way. That's why anxiety is one of the most, uh, I would say the most detrimental emotional experiences we can have, right? I've, I've experienced great bouts of depression and I have issues with anger and loneliness and all sorts of other stuff. Um, anxiety doesn't afflict me that much because of the way my mind works. But when it does, I'll tell you, it's the most unpleasant emotional state to be in. It's, mm. it's crippling. It's destructive. Uh, it literally steals all semblances of joy and appreciation for life around mm. you. Because like I said, you can't be present. You physically cannot be present mm. when you're in an anxious state of mind. So there are certain passages in the Bible that pastors use kind of as blunt instruments to suggest that someone who has anxiety is walking in a sinful mentality and they ought to just stop. That's why I kind of started with that mm. joke. A little tongue-in-cheek, but unfortunately it's given as serious advice sometimes in the church. Yeah. So one would be in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, where Paul says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and majesty and of sound mind. So some people would say like, okay, well, Anxiety is not from God. Therefore, if you are in an anxious state of mind, you're not trusting in God. Or in Isaiah, it says, uh, God keeps in perfect peace the man whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. So it'd be like, once again, so if you're experiencing anxiety, and peace, by the way, is another word for wholeness. So it's the antithesis to anxiety. Mm -hmm. So uh, they would say, okay, well, if you're not experiencing peace, then you're not trusting God. And therefore, that's why you're experiencing anxiety. Mm -hmm. uh, and then in the New Testament, Paul says, uh, I believe this is in Philippians, where he says, be anxious for nothing, but in all things in prayer and supplication, make your will known to God, mm -hmm. uh, and, and these will be answered to you. So Paul, again, has this idea of be anxious for nothing. Don't, don't be, have any anxiety towards anything. And even Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount uh, says, let tomorrow worry about itself. Sufficient yeah. for today are the troubles therein, right? So we have these kind of directed commands that seemingly, if you just took those on face value, you would say, okay, Anxiety must be a lapse in faith because these passages seem to suggest that it's an act of the will, like it's a volitional thing to enter into an anxious state of mind. Mm. There's some problems with that. Uh, the first one is that Jesus experienced anxiety. So Jesus's anxiety, by the way, was so severe that he sweat blood. Yeah. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was experiencing such severe anxiety that he actually, like, he was having a medical reaction to it. His body was reacting to how much strain was put on his spirit, mm. and uh, he started to sweat blood. I've been stressed out before. I've never been that stressed. No. Uh, I don't know anyone who's been that stressed. Mm. And he's so, been in some stressful situations. Right. So the, right. the anticipation of the cross was so severe for Jesus that yeah. that's how his body was reacting. Mm. Uh, David has many psalms in which he's expressing severe anxiety. Psalm 27 being one of my favorites. So we do have instances in the Bible where people who are faithful and acting in a faithful capacity are simultaneously experiencing extreme anxiety. Mm. So therefore, it's wrong, it's incorrect for anyone in the church to suggest that anxiety inherently is a lapse of faith. Mm. It might be, but it's not necessarily, right? Anxiety is a reaction. It's a mental reaction to stressors within your life. 
Mm. Right. And there are certain biological components, by the way, that can make it easier or harder to deal with. So when it comes to tackling anxiety, the first thing that I like to point out to people is that the Bible is a very holistic view of mental health. In other words, uh, taking care of your body is very important to the mental well-being of the saints. Mm. So great example is Elijah when he is undergoing incredible stress, running, literally fleeing from his life from Jezebel in 1 Kings 19, an angel appears to him and gives him food mm. and says, eat. Mm. <laughs> like, that's, that's kind of interesting. You know, you're like, what? Well, of all the things God could have done, you know, if an angel showed up to me tomorrow and made me some food, yeah. I'd be simultaneously happy and disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> like, I kind of want like... Turns uh, out you're just hangry. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you, could you give me a little more than just this food? Like maybe <laughs> some advice? Like, uh, so, but what that tells us is that your body does have an effect on your mind. Mm-hmm. So when you're neglecting your body, when you're not taking care of your physical needs, your capacity for anxiety goes up, mm. right? I'm a new parent. I'll tell you that's 100% true, mm. right? My capacity for anxiety goes way up when I'm sleep deprived as mm. opposed to when I'm getting a good night's sleep. Yeah. Uh, your capacity for anxiety goes way up when, say, you are hungry and you're not really taking care of that part of your body or, or when the food that you're eating is really toxic and bad for you. If you're eating mm. high saturated fats and, and sugary foods, right, that's spiking your blood sugar and making you anxious and jittery, or you're downing caffeine like it's going out of style, all these things can contribute to an anxious mind. So the first thing that I suggest to people is take care of your body. Mm. Take take in inventory. What are you eating? What are you drinking? Are you sleeping? If not, why not, right? Is there something you can do about that? Now, to be fair, people who are in an anxious state of mind tend to spiral. The reason why is because the more anxious you get, the less likely you are to take care of your body. So people are, simple example, people who are anxious tend not to be able to sleep, right? So uh, if you're not sleeping, that that spirals you because it makes it worse. So, uh, you know, there, there are techniques and things that you can learn to make your sleep a little bit more profitable. You may not be able to get eight hours like everybody, but you can mm-hmm. teach yourself how to turn your thoughts down and to be able to get more sleep on a regular basis, whatever your body will allow you to do. So that's the first thing. Take inventory of your body, figure out what you can do practically to help yourself, right? Look at your diet. Look at your exercise, right? If you're not exercising, try to exercise. Mm -hmm. Uh, Look at your sleep schedule. Look at your caffeine intake. All these things play a role. Uh, The next thing that I would tell you to do, so now we're going to get into, now we've talked about the body. Let's talk about the mind. The more more you isolate and you individualize yourself, the more you'll be stuck in your head and your own thoughts. And that's a detrimental Mm -hmm. place to be when you have anxiety. So people who isolate themselves and spend large quantities of time alone without any contact with the outside world, it's difficult for them to be present mm. because they're disconnecting from reality. They're, they're not able to be present in conversation, which forces you to be present. Mm. They're in a place where they're not thinking about things in a present circumstance. Yeah. They don't have to ground themselves. And so they're stuck in their own heads. And by the way, technology there's a reason why anxiety, one reason why anxiety is on the rise in our country is because of technology. Think about what I said. The definition of anxiety is the inability to be present mentally. Mm. What does technology do? It makes it almost impossible to be present, right? Yeah. So even when I'm talking to you, people are talking to me on my phone, people who aren't there. Yeah. I'm reading news articles from around the world. I'm never present yeah. because I'm always disconnected from my present moment by the interruptions of my phone. Yeah. So one big thing is what's your technological dependency? Yeah. 
How much present, time? Present broadcast accepted. Yeah, of yeah, course. If you're listening is, to this, you're doing the right thing. Right, you're doing the right thing. <laughs> but aside from that, thought, yeah, carry but on. But it's like diet. You know, it's not that eating a donut's wrong in and of itself. It's how much are you eating, right? Yeah. And are you supplementing that with healthy food? So in the same way, it's not that using social media or technology is wrong, but are you are you able to be present? Are you yeah. always on your phone? Do you have a time where you just put it away and have time with your family mm-hmm. and you spend time away from your phone and away from technology and you're not checking your social media? Mm-hmm. Uh, part of the reason why people can't sleep at night is because they're on their phones yeah. and the blue light and the, the basic stimulation, stimulation of it, of it yeah. keeps them awake, right? They can't sleep. So limit your technology use, right? Have times in the day where you put your phone away, where you're not touching it, where you're not looking at it. Mm. Uh, When you sleep, if you have a problem waking up and looking at your phone, do not sleep in the same room as your phone. Mm. Put your phone somewhere else, right? (laughs) People are like, well, what if someone calls me? All right, how often is someone going to call you needing to to get a hold of you at that hour in the night, right? What what really could be happening? So, So take your phone out of your room, sleep without it. Uh, the next thing is, like I said, try to integrate yourself more with people around you, right? Do you have time where you just sit down and talk to people? Mm. Uh, do, do you have coworkers? Do you have friends? Do you have people that you can hang around? Build up local community. Build up relationships in which, again, you could get out of yourself and you could be more present in your relationships. That's really, really important. Uh, the final thing, so Paul, when he talks about uh, praying. I'll give you two aspects of prayer and I'll pass it over to Sean. So the first one is the serenity prayer. So this, this falls into Jesus. So remember in Philippians 4, Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in all things in prayer and supplication, make your will known to God. So he seems to believe that prayer is effective in combating anxiety. And that's what we see mm. in the Psalms. Mm. But what kind of prayer is effective in combating anxiety? Is it just asking God directly or is there something more to it? Uh, now, in the Psalms, we see both. We see them praying for God to deal with their anxious heart, Psalm 139, but we also see them doing something meditative in prayer that allows them to calm themselves down. Mm. So let's take the, uh, the serenity prayer for a second, used in AA circles. God grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So in that prayer, what you're doing is you're laying out in an intended intellectual way before God the worries of your life, and you're trying to categorize them based on what things are practical to think about and what things are impractical, right? This is what Jesus means when he says, sufficient for today are the troubles therein. There are things that you need to worry about today. Worry is not always a bad emotion. There are things that you need to do today, and anxiety, worry actually spurs you to action, Mm. right? But perhaps you're worrying about things that A, haven't happened yet, B, may not even happen, and C, you can't do anything about. Mm. Right. So you need to, in a meditative way, organize your thoughts and say, what are the things that I'm worried about that I don't need to be worried about? Mm. And God grant me the serenity to accept that. Yeah. And then the next thing is, what are the things I'm worried about that I can do something about? There's something practical I could do right now to help with that situation and circumstance. God, give me the courage to confront those things and then the wisdom to know the difference. Right. Mm. And so you think it's not just a mindless prayer. You're thinking through your circumstances and elaborating on them before the Lord. And then another part of prayer is meditative on the person of God. I need to remind myself of God's sovereignty and control and ask God to help me rest in that. So uh, I know I went over a lot in a very small amount of time, but Sean, what what else could you add to that? Stick to the word. Stick to the word. Yeah. Yeah. I I found that um, 
powerful thing that's helped me is to find someone else to serve, you know, like someone yeah. someone worse off, so to speak. Yeah. You know, and I think about something I saw with Jesus on the cross. He continued to to minister to other people, even hanging on the cross. I mean, he yeah. forgave the thief. He he cried out to the Father to forgive. He um, made sure his mother had housing. Made sure his mother was taken care of in the hands of uh, John, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like even in the midst of being crucified. Absolutely. Because what we found, even in modern days, we found that uh, self-consciousness is tied heavily to anxiety. Yeah, So right. the more self-conscious you are, the more anxiety you have, actually. Right. So to go and serve, find someone you can serve, it gets, like you said, even talking to someone, yeah. you know, going beyond that to serving them, taking your your focus off of yourself. I found that to be hugely effective. There's been... You know, I think of one man, an elderly man who, you know, when I get into that kind of state, I give him a call or a visit or something and or a hospital visit even. It's amazing yeah. how that just takes you out Absolutely. of yourself. But. Absolutely. One, one caveat I'll put on that, because obviously it's amazing advice. The only caveat I put on that is some people have a very codependent personality trait mm. and therefore they have a tendency to neglect their needs in service of others. So in other words, they neglect their own needs in order to overserve people. And so they they're so obsessive about meeting the needs of others that they never actually take care of themselves and mm. they actually spur their anxiety on further. Mm. So there has to be a balance of, uh, you know, the people on the narcissistic side and self-conscious side, they're serving themselves so much and that's why they're anxious. Mm. The codependent people are serving other people so much that they're never taking care of their own needs and therefore everything's a crisis, wow. right? So uh, that balance is very important. Yeah, that's a great point. Thanks, thanks for sharing that too. Thank you, uh, Gladys. For that question, yes. Thank you for joining us today. We're out of time. Can't believe it. We didn't get through that many questions, but join us again tomorrow, same time, same places, and we will get to more of your questions on the Bible. Thank you for joining us here on Reason for Hope. God bless you guys tonight. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.